standing and turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 2. This is also printed on page 8 in your hymnal, I mean, in your uh, worship guide there, and then page 984 on your pew Bible there in front of you. You can look along there. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, reading through verse 15. Hear God's word this morning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are in the middle of a study in the book of Colossians where we find ourselves in chapter 2 this morning. So as we come to God's Word, let's go before Him one more time in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your Word says that You, every good and perfect gift comes from You and You alone. And in You there is no changing. And Lord, it is with that promise that we come this morning before Your Word and asking that you would make it profitable in our lives, that you would take this word, apply it to our hearts, that we might be confronted with our sin and repent of that, and that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Do that now, Lord, we pray, and we will give you the praise. In Christ's name, amen. Well, a couple of years ago, YouTuber Joey Salandino uh, conducted a social experiment uh, to reveal how easy it was to lure children away from their parents. And so Joey went into a park with his dog, and he got permission from the parents to conduct this experiment. And so he went over and started talking to each child. And he took this puppy with him, and he said, Hey, do you want to see more puppies that I have in my car? And to a child, each one of them went hand-in-hand with Joey away from their parents to the utter shock as their parents watched uh, as they walked away. And most of the parents said that they had even discussed with their children not to talk to strangers or walk away with anyone they didn't know. And so the the parents were just astounded in disbelief at how easy it was for their child to be lured away from them when put in a situation like that. Well, likewise, I think for the believer... Though we profess faith in the gospel and we've been taught in the truths of God's word, it is easy for us to be lured away from the truth. Every day we're presented with numerous created things that can divert our attention and our affections away from the gospel. 
And so as we come to this text this morning, the apostle reveals how easy it is for us to be taken off the right path and lured away. And so for this reason, Paul strongly addresses the issue here with the Colossians and with us in turn this morning. And he provides wisdom and encouragement of how to deal with temptations that come along our journey. So this morning, we're going to look by way of three points this morning at this text. First, we're going to see Paul's exhortation to walk in Christ. And then we're going to look at Paul's warning of how not to be led astray from the path. And then lastly, we'll see Paul's explanation of how we walk faithfully with Christ. So we'll see the exhortation, the warning, and then an explanation. As we saw last week, Paul tells the Colossians that God has made known to them the rich mystery that is Christ in them, the hope of glory. And he, conducted, he concluded that section by sharing the joy that he had for his fellow brothers and sisters who were standing firm in the faith that they had received through him by way of Epaphras, his partner. And so now Paul begins to exhort, him to, to exhort them to continue walking faithfully in this gospel that they had received. Verse 6, you see there, Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, they'd received this truth, but now they needed encouragement to continue in this manner of living. And Paul uses four verbs here to describe what it looks like to continually walk with Christ. First, he says, we are to be rooted Now this conjures up the image of a tree that is firmly planted in the ground, right? In order for a tree to grow taller and more mature, it requires a strong root system in order to kind of hold up the weight of the canopy that's above ground. Growing to maturity has everything to do with a strong, solid root system. Colossians, Paul was delighted that they were traveling down this right path because they had heard and received and were resting in Christ. But he says now they need to be remain grounded, rooted in these truths. And then he continues, not only are we to be rooted, he says that we are to be built up. And this kind of brings to mind this image of constructing a home or a building. And so if you think about constructing a house, what's the most important thing that the house needs to ensure that it is stable and firm? strong foundation, right? This is why the footers of a house are so important. As the concrete is poured in the excavated trench around the foundation of the house, this is on which the house is going to rest. And though you never see the footer again after it's poured, that's what provides the house with stability and a firm, stable foundation. Even though we don't see it, it's integral for having this foundation. And Jesus taught this in Matthew 7 to his disciples. He says, If you build your house on the sand, you are foolish because it will not stand. It will crumble under the storms and the waves. But he says, if you build your house upon the rock, that is a wise man. And when the storms of life come, it will not crumble and fall because you're building your house upon the rock, which is Christ. So we're to be rooted, built up. Thirdly, Paul says we're to be established in the faith. Again, this continues this idea of being strengthened. Kind of going back to the tree analogy, you know, in the, in the first few years of a tree's life, it's kind of susceptible to things. It's susceptible to storms and drought and other elements of the weather. But as it grows and as it matures and strengthens and those roots deepen, it's less and less susceptible to these elements. 
When something is established, it means it's firmly planted. It's stable. Then the fourth way that Paul describes what it looks like to walk with Christ, he says it is to abound in thanksgiving. Paul reveals that a person who's trusted in Christ grows in returning thanks back to God. As believers, the more we grow in the truths of the gospel, the more our hearts will overflow with gratitude and thankfulness for all that we have been given in Christ. The more we become aware of the numerous demonstrations of God's grace as it evidences itself in our lives, the more we give back thanks because we recognize and acknowledge from where those blessings come from, from God alone, to one who is undeserving. The psalmist says in Psalm 116, he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. Returning thanks to the one who is given generously. As Paul said in Colossians 1.28, he desires that the Colossians not only come to faith in Christ, but to grow to spiritual maturity in that faith. But Paul knows the tendency of the human heart. He knows that old habits die hard. And you and I know that as well. Whenever you try to kick a habit, whether it's being late to things, or snacking, or biting your nails, or procrastinating, whatever it is, you know it's much harder to kick the habit than to fall back into the habit. And if we're trying to build our foundation on anything other than Christ, then thanksgiving is not what is going to flow from our lives. But rather selfishness, pride, self-promoting will be the things that flow from our lives. What our heart is rooted in and established in has everything to do with the kind of fruit that is produced in our lives. Our foundation must be built and established on Christ and nothing else. And so this leads us to take inventory and evaluate our own hearts and to ask ourselves, what am I building the foundation of my life upon? Am I trying to build my foundation of my life by chasing every fleeting pleasure and desire that I have? Or am I trying to build it on my success or my popularity, my good moral behavior? Or am I rooting my my hope and my foundation upon my career or my children's achievements or even my own parenting and the successes that I see there? Or are we trying to root our foundation upon our own good works along with Jesus' help and his works? See, whatever it is that we're attempting to build our foundation upon upon Christ, who is the rock, it will crumble. It will fall amidst all the things that come in our lives in a broken and fallen world. Only as we root ourselves in Christ can we stand firm against every threat, every opposition, and every circumstance that comes our way. We also have to evaluate what kind of fruit comes from my life. Is there a thankfulness to God for the things that He brings in my life? Do I stop each day and thank Him for another day of life on this earth that is not guaranteed or owed to me? Do I thank him for my career and my job? Do I thank him for my family, for my relationships, and every other blessing that he brings into my life? Or is ungratefulness, envy, jealousy, bitterness, are these things that flow from my life? If you don't know, ask someone who's close to you. They can tell you. 
Paul's exhorting us not to fall into complacency just because we've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But to continue in and build upon the foundation that God has laid in our life. See, just as the roots of a tree gather nutrients and they provide stability so that it can bear good fruit, so the way that our walk with God grows stronger is by utilizing the means of grace that God has afforded to us and purchased for us. And so we do this by nurturing our hearts through the regular study and meditation upon God's Word and communing with Him through prayer and engaging in intentional relationships with other brothers and sisters in the faith to spur one another on and to partake of the sacraments that He's given us as we'll do this morning with one of the Lord's Supper. All of these means enable us to continue walk down the right path of righteousness so that the gospel will bear fruit in our lives by the Spirit's power. See, if we neglect nurturing our hearts with these means of grace that God's given, then our love for God is going to diminish and weaken. And our heart's going to be easily tempted to walk down other paths as they present themselves to us. We must be proactive in the use of God-ordained means that He's given to us to grow towards greater maturity and holiness as he's called us to. But Paul now gives us a warning against the dangers of being led astray. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul had heard through Epaphras while he's in prison that there was false teachers who were spreading false teaching there in Colossae. And we're not told the actual specifics of that false teaching, but we can gather information by what Paul says. We know that these teachings were man-made, and they were not centered and grounded upon the truth of the Scriptures. And Paul calls them deceptive, in that they promise these grand things if you'll just follow them and you'll obey them. But the problem is they don't deliver on what they promise. And Paul calls these promises empty. Early on in our marriage, Jessica would go to the grocery store and she would come back with some of my favorite snacks. And so she would have maybe a carton of my favorite ice cream or Cheez-Its that I love. And so she'd take them out of the box and it would look just like the original. But then with further investigation, I would read and see these two words written on the box. Reduced fat. You can tell who the healthy one is in the family. But even though it looked just like the original and they tried to advertise that it was going to taste just like the original, I knew it was not going to satisfy like the original. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that this teaching that you're hearing, it is not of Christ. It will not satisfy. It is empty. It is an imposter. Anything other than Christ is not the real thing. See, according to Paul, these False teachers were claiming that human traditions and extra-biblical knowledge had to be added to supplement the faith that they had placed in Christ. These teachers were insisting that, hey, if you want to experience the full experience of Christianity, you got to come to us so that we can teach you. Because what you are missing is not taught in, in the context of the churches that Paul's planning. We have the secret knowledge that you need. But in reality, all they were doing was borrowing from other religions. It was syncretism, and they were making up their own religion. Something else had to be supplemented and added to Christ. 
And furthermore, these false teachers were promoting a philosophy based on the elementary spirits of the world. Now, this phrase is kind of historically a difficult phrase, and commentators kind of vary on what it means and its full meaning of it. But the basic idea is that these teachers were requiring that some sort of worship of spiritual beings. And so in our day, you maybe can liken it to astrology or something of the sort that trusting in the stars or the planets and everything else that control human destiny and outcomes. And so they were claiming that if the Colossian believers would just follow uh, these secret, secret knowledge, they could exercise power over these elemental uh, principles like the stars and the moon and the sun and these sort of things. And so really all they were saying was that Jesus was just another way to experience God. He was one among many. And there were other ways to get to him. Paul responds very clearly to these false teachers. He says to the Colossians in verse 9, he says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul says is Christ has no rivals because he is God in the flesh. It's not that he's just partly God. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. And so if you try to add anything to Christ, you are sinfully minimizing Christ and the supreme authority he has and his divinity and his power that he possesses over all his creation. See, if you have Christ, you have the one who controls all things. You don't need to add anything to your faith. Well, obviously, these specific false teachings are not necessarily direct threats to us today. But that doesn't mean that there are not other threats that are equally dangerous. And they could divert us off the path of righteousness. Two of these specific threats stand out that we're going to look at for a moment here. First is legalism. And legalism, quite simply, is just trying to keep God's favor through what we do. If I follow X, Y, and Z, then God's going to accept me, and he's going to love me. And Sinclair Ferguson, uh, pastor, writes this in his book, The Whole Christ. He defines legalism this way. He says, legalism is separating the law of God from the person of God. And I think this is very helpful for us to understand this, because if we separate the law of God from the person of God, then sin is not necessarily first against God. Sin is put on a level of severity, and so God is not the judge any longer. Man is. The law no longer reflects God's perfect standard of who he is in his holiness, but it now reflects a man-made system of justifying myself and judging others based upon my own standard that I've created. So with legalism, God gets left out of the righteousness equation, and religion just becomes man-made. We're working our way to God. And so the way this plays out is when you feel guilty because you've done something you know is wrong or maybe you've left something undone, instead of running to Christ, you run to the law to try to find something to do to make up for it. And inevitably what this leads to is we have to compare ourselves with other people because we don't measure up not only to God's standard, but we don't even measure up to our own standard. So we have to compare ourselves and judge others and put them down to show that we can feel better about ourselves because of our own failures. But furthermore, legalism ultimately makes void Jesus' claim that his righteousness and his grace is sufficient for us. 
If we attempt to add anything, whether it's our preferences, our styles, any requirement to the equation of salvation as contributors to our justification and our sanctification before God, we have now gone out of God's grace into the prison of legalism. Where do you find legalism in your own heart? What standards are you living by and imposing upon others so that you can feel better about yourself? Where are you judging others, putting them down, condemning them before other people in your, converse, in your conversations with them? We have to ask the Spirit to convict us because it's subtle and it is sneaky. Convict us so that we can see the error of our ways and our sin and turn in repentance back to grace. Well, the other equally dangerous threat to walking in Christ is antinomianism, which is license, basically the opposite error. Because I've trusted in God, I can live however I want because my sins are forgiven. Again, Sinclair Ferguson writes about license. He says, although in one sense, antinomianism is the opposite error from legalism, in another sense, it's the equal error. For it similarly abstracts God's law from God's person and character. Now hear this. It fails to appreciate that the law that condemns us for our sins was given to teach us how not to sin. So see, we don't ignore the law when we come into a relationship with Christ. The role of the law changes and it reveals God's character and the way that he sees life best to work in his kingdom. There's still benefit for us. We're not under its weight as we once were. But we don't throw it away. Instead of obeying the law to try to earn God's favor, we now obey God's law because we already have God's favor. And I think in the South, this is especially true because you, you hear of people who say that they've come to faith in Christ at an early age, they pray to prayer, and yet there's no fruit that is born from their lives of holiness and righteousness and a progressiveness of growing in God's grace. And Paul speaks to this idea of license in Romans 6. He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound all the more? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? See, both legalism and license are rooted in unbelief. Legalism is unbelief that Christ's work is enough for us in our justification and salvation. And so sanctification is this self-effort. I produce the work to improve upon what I've received from Christ. But license is also unbelief because it says that there's unbelief that there's actually a sanctification piece to our salvation. And so it's unbelief that includes this transformation that happens in the present. And so license believes that if you're trying to grow in your faith, that's legalism. Both of them are equal errors in leading us off the path of righteousness. The reality is indwelling sin still remains in our hearts as we battle both legalism and license in our lives. Each one of us has struggles with various sins, whether it's anger, impatience, lust, pride, overeating, whatever it is. But when we stop battling and fighting those indwelling sins and we give in to them, we've walked away and crossed the line into abusing God's grace. 
Are there sins in your life that you have just kind of started waving the white flag? It is futile to continue fighting because I keep going back to it once again. Or maybe there are there sins in your life that you're not even battling because you enjoy the sin, quite frankly. This license will lead us to destruction. No matter what areas in our lives we're tempted on this spectrum of license or legalism, and we can struggle with both at the same time in different areas, they both will lead us away from the path of righteousness. We are called to be captivated unto Christ alone, not to give in to the empty, deceitful temptations of man-made philosophies. Lastly, Paul goes on to explain how we're able to withstand these threats to our faith by expounding on how we faithfully walk with Christ. And so what he's going to do is the next, from verses 10 to 15, he's going to expound upon and reveal how the believer's union in Christ empowers and enables us to walk in obedience down this path of righteousness that ultimately leads us to glory. See, to be in union with Christ just means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Verse 10, Paul says, You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In other words, since God's glory rests upon Jesus Christ, there's no need of or justification for us to go searching elsewhere for help or for salvation or for sanctification. We have it all in Christ. We are lacking in nothing. We have all we need in all of Christ. And so when we go searching elsewhere instead of resting in Christ, it reveals our ungratefulness and it detracts from God's glory. Jesus himself says in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Christ is the fountainhead from which it will never dry up and it will never, ever leave us unsatisfied. If your faith is in Christ, you have been made complete. You are lacking in nothing because you are in Christ. Do you believe this? And if so, does it evidence itself in your daily life in the way that you live? Paul now expresses the benefits that flow from our being united to Christ. And he uses this example for the, to the Colossians, how they were being tempted to gain a power over the flesh through the external rite of circumcision to add to their faith. The circumcision was given under the old covenant as a sign that pointed to a greater reality. It was a physical, it was a bloody sign that involved the cutting off of flesh. It was an outward symbol that was never meant to be enough. Even Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, he says, you have to be circumcised in your hearts. It has to be an inner faith and trust in God or else the sign is, is meaningless. So Paul says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, Paul's making very clear that the New Testament believers under the New Covenant have been circumcised by being baptized into Christ. In other words, there's this precise relationship between circumcision and baptism. 
And the Colossians receiving the sign of baptism, they received the same significance of the sign that was given in circumcision in which it stood. And just as circumcision served to assure Abraham that God would keep his promises that he made to him, Paul says that baptism is a sign of the promises of God that are made and sealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And so those who are joined spiritually by faith in Christ, there's no longer need for the bloody sign of circumcision. Because baptism is meant to assure us that God will fulfill his promises as he is made in his gospel. For those who are in Christ, we are buried with Jesus in baptism. He died for our sins and rose again. Our baptism is a clear sign of our union with him. See, Jesus suffered and died and rose again for our benefit and in our place. He bore the guilt and punishment that we deserved as the Father poured out the fullness of the wrath that we had earned so that he could atone for it. When you embrace Christ, you receive the assurance that your former way of life has been put to death and that your state in reference to God's law is no longer one who is condemned, but is one who has been welcomed with full acceptance into the Father's arms. Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only has Christ procured for us the work of His Spirit so that we are justified, but He assures us through the Spirit that we are being sanctified to look more like Him so that we will die more and more to our sin and live unto His righteousness to reflect His character. And Paul's been kind of building to this climax, this crescendo about the grand reality that is true of us who are in Christ. And in verse 13, he says this, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. God took what was dead, lifeless, without hope, and it says he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul gives three ways that he's accomplished this. Do not miss this. Three ways that God has accomplished making us alive together with him. Verse 13, through Christ's forgiveness of our sins. All of our sins have been atoned for and covered with the righteous blood of Christ. You are no longer defined by your past. And that is a glorious truth, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 14, not only have your sins been forgiven, but he has canceled the debt that you and I have rung up because of our rebellion. And as if that weren't enough, verse 15, he has also disarmed the rulers and authority by gaining victory over them. Putting them to shame, Paul says. And this is the idea of a king walking down the road with the spoils of his victory, showing everyone who has conquered their enemy. Brothers and sisters, if your sin... If your faith is in Christ, your sin has been paid in full. Christ has nailed the certificate of your guilt at the cross. No longer can it haunt you anymore. We share in this grand victory, and so therefore we can walk confidently in the power of the Spirit down this path of righteousness. Well, I imagine that there are some of us here this morning who hear that truth, And you say, yeah, I know that I've been made new and I'm alive in Christ, but I don't feel like I'm very alive in Christ this morning. 
May I su- suggest that maybe this is due in part to the fact that we don't fully grasp and understand how our relationship with sin has changed now that we're united to Jesus. See, because we've been baptized into Christ, this means that we are new creation. We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into a new kingdom of His beloved Son. And so therefore, we are now able not to sin where once before that was not true of us. Not only are we given a new identity and brought into a new kingdom, we now have a new struggle, a new relationship with sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider there is an accounting term. It means to reckon, to reconcile. And so what Paul is saying here is that when we are tempted with sin, we must reckon We must recognize that we are new creation, no longer in bondage to sin. And so what this means is, is when in those moments of temptation, when we're tempted to lie or tempted to cheat or tempted to gossip or tempted to minimize lust or sexual sin or attempting to speak bad about others, in those moments, we have to reckon what will we consider in those moments. Because what we consider in that moment will lead us down one path or the other. Will we reckon that God's word is true? Will we consider what he said about us really is true of us? Even if we do stray from the path, which we will, we don't have to fear. We can come back to the open arms of our Father who welcomes us with forgiveness back to the path as he will empower us to continue to walk down it. So this morning, where are you in your relationship to the path that leads to righteousness? Are you walking in the complete opposite direction in willful disobedience and rebellion? Know that there's never there's never a time that's too late for you to stop and humble yourself and come to the one, the only one, who can deal with your shame and your guilt and grant you new life and freedom in Christ. Or maybe your faith is in Christ this morning, but you're you're feeling weary and tired from the battle and the temptations. Or maybe you're experiencing a season of refreshment and joy. No matter where you are on the journey, God is beckoning us to set our eyes and set our gaze upon Him alone and be captivated by Him. So that as we rest in his work and follow the path, we will be able to taste the fullness of the blessings that God has purchased for us through Christ. While we await the fullness of that victory that one day he will usher in in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, we get this morning to celebrate and partake in yet one of these benefits in the Lord's Supper. And as we come to this table, we come with a confession. A confession that we are weak. We are insufficient. There's no amount of good that we can put forth to satisfy what God requires. But not only a confession, we come with a declaration. A declaration that Christ is all-sufficient, that He is powerful, and He has completed the work that we've left undone. And so would you come to this table this morning with that confidence, no matter how weary you are, with the promise that you will be strengthened and nourished in your souls. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we gather to come to this table, we come as weak and needy sinners in desperate need to nourish us this morning upon the gospel. And so as we take this bread and this wine to our lips, would it be not only a reminder of the lengths that you've gone to to show your lavish and great love for us in Christ, but may it truly nourish our souls that we might continue down this pathway that leads to life everlasting. And Lord, we ask that you would give us that strength and the power of your spirit to sustain us until that day, that glorious day when you return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.